coming up on a election here, and I just wanted to kind of talk Turkey on some things. Um, as you guys know, we typically keep Republican-slash-Democrat discussions out of our fellowship, and we do that because it just is a problem. It causes people to fight with each other. I just don't think there's any good that comes from it. But we do speak about truth. Truth isn't Republican or Democrat. Truth is truth. I think it's important that churches especially just very forthright in holding forth the truth. And they're not uh, beholden to a political party, and they're not beholden to an ideology, and they're not beholden to their church leadership even. A.W. Tozer, who said that the minister who is not forthright with every one of his sermons is not a minister of Christ. If he's at all thinking about tomorrow, what are the consequences of what he says, he's not a minister of Christ. And I believe that. I think truth needs to be declared, and we don't need to cushion it, and we don't need to mollify it. We just need to speak it. I think that's important. Everybody take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 10 it says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. So, what does this mean? Many of us have heard this verse before. The King James Version, the way it's translated in King James, it says that you may speak the same thing, that you all speak the same thing. Now, when we read this, it seems very conformist and very uniformist, doesn't it? That we're all in lockstep with one another. So what are we talking about here? Does it mean that a Christian can't hold his own opinion? That we're all supposed to have the same opinion on everything? I hope not. But as we read this section, I've heard this verse used in wrong ways in the past, that it is a verse that we use in order to beat everybody into submission and make everybody look the same, you know, all the Christians. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that, Look at verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? Preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be empty of its power. It's one thing having your own opinion, and it's another thing speaking the truth of the word, right? Paul's saying, look, we can, there's a lot of room for opinion, but when it comes to the doctrine, we should all be speaking the same thing. There should be no division among us. The message, it goes on to say, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Why do we have to keep the doctrine pure, and why do we have to preach the gospel and, and be the same in how we preach it? Because it's the power of God. And if we mess with it, we don't have the saving power of God. People don't get saved. The importance of the consistent and coherent doctrine, Christian doctrine, cannot be overstated. Consider the doctrine of salvation by grace. Ephesians says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we uh, for us to do them. So whose workmanship are we? God's, right? Not our own. And this is the doctrine of grace. It's by grace that we are saved. But what happens? Man's fallen nature gets in there. And what does man's fallen nature do? It asserts 
that is by my holiness or my perfection or my sinlessness that I have salvation, right? That I can work my way into God's goodness. And that's a pervasive doctrine of the flesh. So why is it important that we speak the same thing? Because we have to stand shoulder to shoulder against this doctrine of works, right? It's important. We can't afford to have every man having his own psalm and every man having his own doctrine. That the church, as a unit, as a body, has to speak the same thing. We can't afford to have diverse opinions on the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that it was Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to scripture, and after being seen of others, at last he was seen of Paul also. And it's by the grace of God, Paul said, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. For I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. See, that's why we have conformity and uniformity in our message, right? That it is by having a uniform message that Christ died for your sins, and because he died for your sins, you can have salvation. Very important. Now, on other things, we can have some diversity, right? We can even disagree with one another. Look, when you have people who have different minds and different opinions, you're going to have disagreement. That's just the way it is. It's life. Anybody who's been involved in a family has had disagreements. That's not a bad thing. It's often through disagreements that we reach an understanding, and that understanding is better than either of our opinions to start with, right? I mean, that's called consensus, and consensus is a good thing many times. Not always, but many times. Sometimes it's a compromise, but many times it's a good thing when two people get together, disagree, hash it out, work it out, and they come to a consensus. That's a good thing, right? Back in the old days and old ministries, you know, a lot of us approach the attitude, you know, it's kind of dictatorial. Look, it's my way or the highway. Well, that's you can't have unity in a family with that kind of attitude. I think I learned that most by getting married and having kids. My wife has her own mind. I start wagging my finger at my wife, and it is just not ever going to get me anywhere quick, right? I mean, that's just the truth. It was a hard lesson for me to learn, but I learned it and, and continue to learn it. That my wife and I have learned over the years to have differences, but are able to come and, and, and air our differences in a constructive manner. And I think that is awesome. I think it's awesome. So when we read 1 Corinthians 1.10, we, we read about that we must all speak the same things. It's specifically talking about doctrine. How we walk that doctrine out a lot of times, there's, there's a lot of room for discussion, right, and implementation. And, and that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. On those areas of doctrine that we don't agree on, and those come up too, what do we do? We get together and we discuss it. Like in the book of Acts, right? The Council of Jerusalem. They got together and they talked about it. And they came to conclusions. So that's, that's the deal. God never called Christians to be cookie cutters. Go to Romans chapter 11. 1133. Oh, the depth 
of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? God is big. Ephesians talks about the length and breadth and depth and height of God, that God is huge and, and expansive and incredibly wise and diverse in all kinds of things. And really, the only way that we can ever comprehend God is for God to pour out his spirit on us. And then we can really approach understanding him. So how could you have a monolithic people called Christians with such an expansive God? Does that make sense? We should be a very diverse group of people, right? A very interesting group of people. When you come to church, it should be an interesting place to be, <laughs> right? I mean, that's you can't have people. We are not automatons for God. Go to First Corinthians chapter 12, and look at verse 12. It says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form, what, one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, one spirit, right, poured out on one body made up of many members. So, do we have something in common? We certainly do. We have that Holy Spirit. But we still continue to be many members, right? There's nothing monolithic about the body of Christ. There's nothing monolithic about us. It says in verse 15, If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that, or it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I love that, right? That God put this whole thing together as he wanted it. If they were all one part, where would, be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but there is one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts which are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. That means that the, the body of Christ has common care for one another. Why? Because we see how important to the proper functioning of the whole each member is. Do you see that? And we don't just say this as a glossy term, you know, it's a term that we really mean, that I, I see a brother who is struggling with sin. I need to help him overcome his sinfulness. Why? So that he can be up and functioning because he is indispensable. He's indispensable. Makes sense, huh? Because we see that the, the one body works together. It works together. Verse 24, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, 
But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Isn't that awesome? It says here, now you are the body, right, the collective, and each one of you is part of it. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing that the individual is important and the group is important. And the individual should not be exalted to the point where the group is sacrificed or vice versa, that it's all important. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7. We read this verse a couple of weeks ago, but I really like it. Revelation 7, and look in verse 9. This is John talking, and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Awesome. You talk about diversity, right? You know, when in the Old Testament, the law was designed for Israel. It was very tribal. I mean, the truth of it was universal, but it was, a, it was written for Israel. Christianity, though, is written for all mankind. It's universal. So, you, you know, we talked about this before, so that you have Christians who live in the U.S., they're Christians first and citizens of the U.S. second. You have Christians living in Colombia, right? Christians first, citizens of Colombia second. You have Christians living in China, Paraguay, right? All over the world we have Christians. They're Christians first and citizens of their respective com- countries second. You see what I'm saying? So if you think about it, a Christian in Colombia or a Christian in China is really more akin to me than my fellow countrymen. That's the way it should be. Even though we speak different languages, the thing that we have in common, the thing that binds us together is Christianity, right? We are members of this body of Christ. But the thing that I want to stress here is the diversity of the body of Christ. You know, where did we get it in our minds that Christianity was, you know, lily white people going to church on Sunday? You see what I'm saying? It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with Christ. I mean, it's spectacular when you, when you consider that, you know, the same Christianity that we're part, participating in here is the same Christianity that the underground church in China is part of. And that the music is different. And the cookies at fellowship are different, but the message is the same. Do you see that? And that's what's so important, so awesome about this thing. There's diversity, but certain things don't vary from country to country and language to language and people to people. That Jesus Christ died for your sins and that we have salvation. And every culture that we go to, that is our message. And that's what makes Christianity so fascinating. It's the same message. So, diversity of opinion. We've already talked about, started talking about this, that we all hold different opinions on different things, and that's fine. 
That's fine. One of the greatest things that God ever gave us was freedom of will. And for us as Christians, that is sacrosanct. Turn to John chapter 7. So we have different opinions. We hold different opinions. Look in John 7 and look at verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So, you know, the man of the world, right? He has his own opinion. And the criteria that we're talking about here is who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for our own glory, our own honor? Or are we living for God and Christ? And that's something looking over in chapter 7, verse 21. It says, Jesus said to them, I did, I did one miracle. And that miracle was that he healed a man on the Sabbath, right? He said, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished. But because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you so angry with me for healing a man or healing the whole man on the Sabbath? And then he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but make right judgments. So we can all have our own opinions. Absolutely. We have freedom of will. But not all opinions are created equal. We have to look oftentimes at the motivations. What am I motivated by, right? Am I motivated because I want to bring glory to my God? Or am I motivated to bring glory to myself, right? There's a lot of that going on in this world. So the point is, isn't uh, whether or not that you are able to hold an opinion. The question is, the opinion that you're holding, is it the right opinion? Of course, there's a logic to the opinion, and then there's the motivation behind the opinion. You know, we live in an age of moral equivalency. We've all heard that term before, moral equivalency, right? And two people have two differing opinions, but they're both equally right. No, they're not. No, they're not. It's all right to say this opinion is more right than that opinion. And just because people say, speak an opinion doesn't mean that they're equally correct, that they have, have equal merit and equal validity. They don't. They don't. Some opinions are righteous opinions. Some opinions, and that's important to keep in mind. And righteousness is not in the eye of the beholder. Who determines righteousness? God does. I was thinking about Hebrews 4.3. You don't have to turn there, but it says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees everything. I think one of the truly distinguishing uh, aspects of a Christian is that he lives his life in light of God looking over his shoulder, seeing everything that he's doing, that there's an accountability there. There's accountability for your actions. There's an accountability for your opinions, your thoughts. Uh, you can't put a price on it. It's fairly imperceptible to us, isn't it? We're just living our lives. But why is it that a Christian's thought life is so radically different from this world? Because he's accountable to God. He's constantly, thought by thought, thought by thought, weighing his opinions in light of God's oversight. That's huge. That is huge. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at verse 26. It says, What shall we say then, brothers? When we come together, everyone has a hymn 
or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. How about that? So there's a motivation for you, right? The Corinthians were coming together as a group. What was the problem? They were trying to show off. They were looking at how spiritual I am. And what's Paul saying to them? Look, your motivation needs to be strengthening the church. That's why you come when we when we get together. That's why you come with your message or your psalm. You're there to strengthen the church. So I was thinking as I was putting the teaching together that you know a lot of us have predispositions, right? We have a predisposition towards a certain way of thinking. You know, I've always been kind of a rebel. I know you wouldn't think that now, but growing up, I was the, the guy who broke all the rules regularly. Um, we're just kind of predisposed that way. And I have two boys who do the same thing, don't they? Do they ever follow the rules? No. They break the rules all the time. We get really irritated at them, but I have to remember that as a kid, I was exactly the same way. It's just a predisposition. It's how we are. You look at these other kids, everything that their parents tell them to do, they do with a big smile on their face. <laughs> that doesn't happen in our house. Not at all. And I think that, you know, we carry certain things into our politics. And, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not doing the whole Democrat-Republican thing here, but I am going to talk about the truth of it. We come in with certain predispositions, right? You know, we talk about conservatives and we talk about liberals, right? Uh, a conservative is somebody who recognizes, you know, a respect for tradition and convention and established values and standards, right? The liberal or the progressive is somebody who wants to shake things up. The nonconformist, that person who says to hell with conventions and rules and expectations, let's live a little. Let's try something new. You know, when I was a young man, I was a liberal. But I find that the older I get, the more conservative I get. And I think that's wisdom, right? Uh, who was it? Winston Churchill, who said that a young man who is not a liberal is, has no heart. And the old man who is not a conservative has no mind. And, and isn't that true? Young man, young person, they, they're nothing but heart. Very little wisdom, all heart. And they want to throw themselves into everything. And they want to right all the wrongs and change everything that's wrong about this world. And they go charging in, and what happens? They go through the school of hard knocks, and they realize that there's a big difference between I wish and I can, right? That not everything is easy. Just because you think it doesn't mean it is. And that's part of the lesson of life as you grow, you know, you grow up, you become generally more conservative, I think, right? A young person doesn't really have too much context to work with, right? They're thrown into the world. Here is the state of the situation. They're quick, quick to be emotional. They're easy to be incited. They want to fix everything that's wrong. They have that conceit of being a young person and thinking, oh, you old people, you had your chance and you failed. <laughs> right? Now it's our turn. <laughs> but what does the Bible say? Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Absolutely. Hopefully, as that young person grows older, they develop some depth. Uh, but you've all heard the term, there's, nothing, there's no fool like an old fool. You know, the person who's grown up and missed all those life lessons and continue to be the fool. So we have the political and the conservative. 
the great, you know, some of the good things about a, a liberal, a progressive, is that, you know, for a young person, they have the new eyes, right? We call it at work, new eyes. You know, when you bring a new engineer onto the project, he doesn't know anything about anything. He's seeing things for the very first time. Now, some of the old engineers are like, hey, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything, but he has fresh eyes. If he's a good engineer and he's coming on that project, he can see things for the first time that nobody else is seeing. They're all wrapped up in, this is how we've always done it. Boilerplate. Boilerplate, that's right. Everything Exactly. Everything becomes boilerplate. But to that new guy seeing it for the first time, there's something very valuable about that. All right? So while this old, you know, crusty conservatives want to dismiss the progressive or the liberal, I think I think that would be not so good, right? Because you have fresh eyes. A lot of times you have creative solutions. Now, when we talk about progressives in our culture, typically we define them as people who believe in government action and that it can achieve equal opportunity and equality for all. Uh, you know, it's a great aspiration. Is it true? No. Uh, we'd have We'd have some discussion on that. It is the duty of the government to alleviate social ills and protect civil liberties and individual and human rights. Well, that's partially true, certainly. Protect rights, protect civil liberties, I believe that. Um, believe that the role of government should be to guarantee that no one is in need. Is that the role of government? Well, if I were a young person, I would probably think that. Why? Because I came from mommy and daddy who took care of all my needs, and now I'm going out into the world and it's just a natural extension from mommy to dad and daddy to the big government to do exactly the same thing. I'm not evil for thinking that. I'm just, you know, ill-informed by my lack of content. You see that? These, these kids who go right from mommy and daddy to college, I mean, they've never lived on their own. They've never made decisions that had consequences to them. So, of course, a lot of them are going to think that way. So I don't think badly for, uh, about them. Uh, what some of the challenges of this progressive mindset? The inability to know when enough is enough, right? That we want, you know, we want equality for everybody. Well, that's a laudable goal, but what does that mean? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, the difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. Do we want equality of opportunity? We always do. I think that any person in this country ought to have the same opportunities. But do we want equality of outcome? That's where I go in there and say, look, you make too much money. I'm going to take some of your money and give it to this guy over here because he's not making enough money. You see my point there? That's wrong. And that's the basis of what we call communism, isn't it? So the problem with the, you know, the progressives is understanding when enough is enough. Another one is that the progressives are always messing, always, you know, I think about the, the kid who's drawing the picture and he keeps adding something to it, keeps adding something to it, or making a recipe, and he takes a taste of his soup, and he keeps adding until it tastes horrible. <laughs> a lot of times I see that, that, you know, with the progressive, they feel like they have to constantly be changing something, otherwise they're not a good progressive, right? And then it becomes the situation of change for the sake of change. Does everybody know what the term iconoclastic means? Do you know who the iconoclasts were? 
Okay, so after the Reformation, I'm going to tell you, after the Reformation, this is Martin Luther, right? You had the Reformation, and you had, for the first time really in history, somebody stand up to the Catholic Church. And these people were considered the liberals, right? They were the liberals. And they stood up against the Catholic Church, and they broke away from the Catholic Church. Yay! (laughs) And then you had this group of people called the Iconoclasts. And so we were talking before fellowship about, you know, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and how the church had become very ornate and ostentatious. Well, you have this group of people called the, the, they were the Counter-Reformationists. They were the iconoclasts. And they went around tearing down and destroying these beautiful churches and paintings and statues. Sound familiar? Destroying things for the sake of change. Change for change's sake. This is iconoclastic. That's what it means. We're, we're watching it happen in real time in our own country and in Europe, where people are going around tearing down statues because in their minds they think that that's what a good progressive does. We've got to change everything all the time. So that's a downside to being a progressive. Conservatives. Conservatives believe that you change things when it's appropriate. Right now, if I sound like I'm, you know, gilding the lily here a little bit, I'm a conservative. A conservative, by definition, believes in personal responsibility, limited government, free markets, individual liberty, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. Those are all good things. Believes in the role, uh, believes that the role of government should be to provide people the freedom necessary to pursue their own goals. Right, freedom of opportunity. Conservative politics generally emphasize empowerment of the individual to solve problems. We're not constantly looking to the government with their one-size-fits-all solutions, but it's the individuals in local areas solving local problems, right? Of course, both sides think the other one is wrong. In my opinion, however, if both sides are properly balanced, right, then the liberal actually needs the conservative, and the conservative actually needs the liberal, okay? It's, I just believe it. The liberal needs the conservative to understand when enough is enough. Look, your change is great, but we don't need to change that. That works. Leave it alone. The the conservative needs the liberal to keep things dynamic, to keep things from becoming fresh, keep them from being ossified, right? New ideas. That's great stuff. Remember, uh, a minister in our old ministry made a statement, and it stayed with me all these years. A man of truth at times is more conservative than a conservative, and at other times is more liberal than the liberals. Isn't that something? A man of truth is more, at times more conservative than the conservatives. At other times, it is more liberal than the liberals. I want to read a poem for you guys. The poem is called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. The Gods of the Copybook Headings. It's kind of a strange title, um, but it was written by a man named Rudyard Kipling. Um, He was a poet back in the early 1900s. Rudyard Kipling had personal tragedy in his life. He was very supportive of the British government and the British participation in war, in World War I, and he sent his son off to die in that war and uh, became very angry and embittered at the wastefulness of his government. Um, so, but anyway, uh, the copybook headings, the term copybook headings, in, in the old days, 
state, you know, before computers and typing, people practiced their penmanship, you know, writing in what was called copybooks. And so the way that the copybooks were set up is at the very top of the copybook was a famous proverb or, you know, maxim or something. You'd have a, a quote at the top, and then the child would sit down and copy that quote over, line by line, over and over and over again. So not only was he practicing his penmanship, but he was also reinforcing that proverb in his life. Okay, so when we talk about the gods of the copybook headings, it means these old standards that are truisms that everybody should know and everybody should practice because they are, right? Ages come, ages go, but these are the truths in every age, okay? So when you hear this term, the gods of the copybook headings, that's what it's talking about. It's just a figurative way of saying that. Throughout history, as societies advance from jungles to civilizations, we've a habit of ignoring natural laws or universal maxims, these proverbs, in pursuit of worldly or new ideas in the marketplace. Now, when he talks about the marketplace, it has nothing to do with buying and selling. The marketplace is talking about where we get together and chat. It's like you could say a chat room or right out in the public square. And so when you talk about the gods of the marketplace, so you have the gods of copybook headings and then the gods of the marketplace. And the gods of the marketplace are talking about these contemporary ideas, these new ideas, these false hopes and grand dreams, grand lies based on open change, open change, right, that are often peddled by politicians and false ministers who wield the power of new ideas to control men. Isn't that interesting? In pursuit of new wisdom, we seek a truth that will help us to deny our limited nature and exalt us for our mental or physical or moral prowess. Truth that supposedly none of us has ever known or seen before, right? It's new. Now, you can see the impact that those ideas have on the young person who has no context, right? It's a new idea. Well, that's truth. You know, to the older person, he's developed a healthy sense of skepticism. He's like, yeah, we'll wait and see. So the point here is, so when I start reading this poem, you guys are going to understand that we have the gods of the copybook headings and the gods of the marketplace, okay? The entire power structure of kingdoms and civilizations have been built and lived with the marketplace ideas as their foundation, right? That means shallow, transient... You know, we we talk about, you know, the man who built his house upon the sand as opposed to the man who built his house upon a rock. It's the same thing that's being taught here, okay? As time cycles favoring one power structure for another, death and destruction follow the failure of these marketplace ideas. And hum, humanity painfully realizes that old truths or natural laws outlive social, government, or man-made promises. How about that? that those truths that the kids write down in their copybooks are the lasting truths that live on from age to age, civilization to civilization, okay? So, okay, so the gods of the copybook headings. As I pass through my incarnations in every age and race, I make my proper prostrations to the gods 
of the marketplace. Now remember, the gods of the marketplace are these newfangled ideas. Peering through reverent fingers, I watch them flourish and fall. And the gods of the copybook headings, I notice, outlast them all. We were living in trees when they met us. They showed us each in turn that water would certainly wet us as fire would certainly burn. But we found them lacking in uplift, vision, and breath of mind. So we left them to teach the gorillas while we followed the march of mankind. We moved as the spirit listed. They never altered their place. Talking about these gods of the copybook headings. We moved as the spirit listed. They never altered their pace. Being neither cloud nor windborne like the gods of the marketplace. But they always caught up with our progress. And presently word would come that a tribe had been wiped off the ice field or the lights had gone out in Rome. With the hope that our world is built on, they were utterly out of touch. They denied that the moon was stilton. Stilton means cheese. It's type cheese, right? It means what? It's cheese. They denied so these these gods of the copybook headings, right? They denied that the moon was made of cheese. <laughs> they denied that the moon was stilton. They denied she was even Dutch. They denied that wishes were horses. They denied that pigs had wings. So we worship the gods of the market who promised us beautiful things. When the Cambrian measures were forming, they promised perpetual peace. They swore if we gave them our weapons that the war of the tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foe. And the gods of the copybook heading said, stick to the devil you know. That's the proverb. Stick to the devil you know. On the first Framinian sandstones, we were promised a fuller life which started by loving our neighbor and ended by loving his wife. Till our women had no more children and men lost reason and faith. And the gods of the copybook heaven said, the wages of sin is death. In the Carboniferous Epoch, we were promised abundance for all by robbing selected Peter to pay a collective Paul. But though we had plenty of money, there was nothing our money could buy. And the gods of the copybook heading said, you don't work, you die. Then the gods of the market tumbled, and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew, and the hearts of the meanest were humbled and began to believe it was true. That all is not gold that glitters, and two and two make four. And the gods of the copybook headings went up to explain it, once more, as it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man. There are only four things certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit, and the sow returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And that after this is accomplished and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing, but no one must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. How about that? The point here is this, that mankind in all his progress can think that he's moving forward on all these great ideas, these great things, but... Truth be known, he's 
laying the grounds for his own destruction. And that's why Christianity, as a standard, is generally conservative. Because we recognize that the world's going to come, concepts, ideas are going to come and go, but the Word of God liveth and abideth forever. Do you see that? Isn't that something? Go to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. And look at verse 28. 22, 28. It says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. Do not move the ancient boundary stones. What are we talking about here? You know, your border with your neighbor? Well, what's the, what's the old adage, right? Good fences make good neighbors, right? But it's even deeper than that. It's that you have certain boundaries that are set up throughout millennia, ages and ages and ages. And they're just truisms. They just are. But, you know, mankind wants to come in there and touch everything with his paws, right? Get, get his paw marks on everything. Go to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. Who's wisdom here? Well, this is the personification of wisdom. Wisdom is like an older sister, right? right? She's acting like an older sister, and she's calling out into the street. She's raising her voice in the public square, verse 21. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out in the gateways of the city. She makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded at my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. So wisdom saying, look, if you had listened to me, I would have made you wise. I would have made you wise. But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. Notice that it doesn't say if calamity overtakes you. It's when calamity overtakes you. And wisdom will mock us, meaning, of course, when you need it, you won't have it. You won't have the wisdom. If you don't take the time to listen to wisdom, to change when wisdom rebukes you and says you're doing the wrong thing, you're thinking the wrong thing, if we don't, in the, in the times of peace, yield to wisdom, then when we really need it, wisdom won't be there. It won't be there. It says in verse 27, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Isn't that great? In other words, we should be pursuing wisdom regularly. And when wisdom speaks, we are all ears, right? It's so important. So, you know, earlier I was talking about the conservatives and the liberals and how each one 
has should have something to offer here in our political discourse in this country, right? The conservatives need the liberals, and liberals need the conservatives. But the fact is we are not in a well-balanced state here. It is apparent that the political left in this country and generally throughout the West has lost its way and is out of control. And what they are dispensing is sheer madness. This isn't politics. I'm not talking Republican and Democrat. I'm talking madness. I'm talking uh, a doctrine of insanity. This whole notion that a man can become a woman is insanity. It's insanity. Or that a woman can become a man. When you think about the truisms throughout history, the truisms that last from age to age, do you think this is going to last? Does this fall into the category of the gods of the marketplace or the gods of the copybook headings? The gods of the marketplace. I was looking at it today. There are 64 terms to describe gender identity and expression now. 64 terms. You know how many there used to be when I was a kid? When we were kids? Two. Male and female. That's what God says there are. There are two. Marriage. Marriage has traditionally been between a man and a woman. This is a truth that's self-evident. It's self-evident. Why? Because only a man and a woman can do what? Produce children. So we as Christians can respectfully disagree on a lot of things. Okay? We can respectfully disagree on the economy. We can disagree on taxation. We can disagree on immigration. We can disagree on national defense. We can disagree on trade. We can disagree on health care, on climate change. We can disagree on a lot of things, right? When Paul said, you know, that he doesn't want there to be any divisions among you, he doesn't have the same opinion on everything. There can be disagreement, you know, between us, right? But there are certain negotiables. And so going into our actions, I'm going to tell you three of the ones that really come to mind for me. Non-negotiables. As a Christian, walking out your Christian faith, walking out the truth of Scripture, these are non-negotiables. Okay? The first one, the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life. The second one, the sanctity of marriage. And the third one, the preservation of religious liberty. Religious liberty. Sanctity of life. And we have one of our two political parties is dedicated to supporting Planned Parenthood and NARAL. NARAL stands for National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League. They, it is a party platform that they support abortion now up into and even beyond birth. They, I mean, this isn't just a few opinions. This is a, this has been institutionalized in the party. They claim they do this to protect women's rights. At one time, they used to say that they believe that abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. Well, that phrase has gone the way of the dodo bird. <laughs> now, the, like the New York legislature was cheering, cheering. That they could, that they passed the law that said that they can abort a baby up until the moment of birth. Now, I, I'm sorry, but I can't see eye to eye with anybody 
who believes that, ever. The fact is the radical left in this country does this to ensure, rather than the rights of a woman, they do this to ensure that there are no consequences for sexual promiscuity, and that the empowered woman can have sex with whomever she wants, whenever, wherever. And that's the truth of it. Sexual, you know, what we used to call in the old days sexual immorality, it's, it's not a thing anymore. That you are an empowered woman, if you, uh, you are considered an empowered woman, if you can go out there and have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. I'm sorry, but that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not right. And because of this promiscuity, the fact is that since Roe versus Wade, there have been 60 million abortions in this country alone. 60 million murders. The radical left in this country opposes legislation introduced to require doctors to provide medical care to children who are born inadvertently due to a failed abortion attempt and to, and they are, uh, because of legislation allowed to let that child die on the operating table. I, I don't know how you could possibly justify that. The fact that, you know, even in the abortion, that child, I mean, think about it. If, if a child was born and you pinched that child on the leg, what would the child do? It would scream bloody murder, right? But you, you, in the womb, that, ch that child who has that feelings, those capabilities, you can dismember them. I mean, how can you possibly believe that that is just or right? They absolutely feel pain. The radical left in this country believes in the re repeal of the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is the legislative provision that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortions except to save a life of a woman or a pregnancy that arises out of incest and rape. In other words, the Hyde Amendment uh, keeps the government from charging the taxpayer for, for abortions. And now that, that's what this group wants to do is make you and me pay for this. So that's the, that's the number one. Non-negotiable. I do not negotiate that one, and I will not. The second one, sanctity of marriage. Everybody take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Look at verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him, talking to Jesus. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning. So this is a, a criteria here for what he's saying. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. How about that? What God has joined together, let man not separate. The only marriage that God sanctions where two are able to become one is the marriage between the male and the female. Is that clear enough? So when you have these Christian ministries that are marrying men with men and women with women, it is clearly in violation of what this says, that the one flesh is only available to a man and a woman relationship. It's not available to a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Verse 7, why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his life a certificate, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So the idea here is the beginning. Now, there are Christians who come along and say, well, you know, Jesus never spoke out against homosexual marriage. Didn't need to. He spoke about, he spoke out about marriage. 
if you speak the truth about one, it excludes the other. Isn't that something? That's one of those interesting things about truth. When you speak the one, it excludes the other. And the last one is the preservation of religious liberty. The radical left in this country is all about the repeal of the Religious Freedoms Act. The Religious Freedoms Act in this country protects the conscience right of healthcare professionals who decline to participate in abortion procedures. The point is, is that you eliminate the individual's right to abstain due to conscience. Do you know how significant that is? That means I can compel you at the threat of firing you into doing something that you don't want to do. This is interesting, too, when we start thinking about ministers, you know, and churches and what they can do if I choose as a minister not to marry a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Well, then that's my conscience, right? Well, then they can strip a church of their 501c3 status and they can uh, close that church down. They can arrest you. They're doing that in Canada. Yeah. How about church-based adoption agencies? You know, those uh, church-based, you know, the agencies that will only place a child with an, a, a couple who is heterosexual. They can compel them to and force them to place children with homosexual couples. Isn't that something? Uh, the mandates like in Obamacare where religious organizations are required to provide contraceptive and abortifacient drugs to their employees, despite the fact that this is in direct violation of their faith convictions and doctrinal teaching. This is what's coming, folks, if we don't stop it. And this is an open door to socialism. Socialism. We've witnessed over the past months the murder and mayhem that has been inflicted on American cities. The expectation is, is that we believe that this is all grassroots. It's not. It was planned and carried out deliberately. The idea is so that it could destabilize, destabilize. It's institutional secularism, institutional secularism. And of course, people will say, well, wait a minute. The Constitution teaches that there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. You've heard that before, right? I'll ask you a question. Is that in the Constitution? Now, does anybody know where that phrase comes from? It comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists. And he wasn't talking about, you know, the, the, you know, the government keeping the religious people out of their knickers, but the religious people keeping the government out of their knickers, right? It was just the opposite. But it has got, you know, the, the left in this country has gotten hold of this, and they're using it in order to drive God out of every aspect of our society, out of schools, out of public debate, everything, everything. I mean, look at it now. We have a Supreme Court nominee who's being uh, given a religious test when the Constitution absolutely forbids such a thing. But they're doing it. It's just amazing to me. You see, in socialism, the state, the country, sees itself not as God, right? I mean, that would be pretty dramatic, wouldn't it? The state doesn't see itself as God. It sees itself as the ultimate authority, Right? For all things, all things. The socialist sees his philosophy as a substitute for religion, and therefore the socialist is antagonistic towards Christianity, right? His attitude is, why can't those silly Christians get with the program? So there's a natural antagonism. Rather than preserving and protecting 
diversity, right? It's a persecution of diversity. They are antagonistic to Christianity. And the godless people, right, will start to reflexively look to the government to solve their problems rather than to God and themselves. Isn't that something? That's how it works. So the kid who grew up with mommy and daddy, who took care of his needs, went on to college, had all his needs taken care of, and then on and on, right? The government takes care of the individual. And in people's hearts, what does the government become? An idol. An idol. That's what socialism is all about. Socialism is completely incompatible with the U.S. Constitution. Completely incompatible with it. If you think that we are going to have a socialist government and maintain the provisions in the Constitution, you are absolutely mistaken. You are absolutely mistaken. John Adams said, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. The entire Constitution, specifically the Bill of Rights, were, uh, were written to protect the individual's freedoms. Isn't that interesting? The individual's freedom from an all-powerful state. That's what the, how the Constitution was written. We read in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the proper reading of, you know, the Constitution and the Declaration, that they should actually be considered one, that the Declaration of Independence was actually kind of a preamble to the U.S. Constitution, that they should be read together. And the, the reference in there, the, the point here is that our rights don't come from government. They come from God. And the purpose of government is to do what? Protect those God-given rights. That's our Constitution. Socialism will turn that on its head. Everybody wants to talk about how benevolent and wonderful socialism is. It's not. Remember, any government that can give you everything is the same government who can take it away. So let's review a few of the protections of our individual rights in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. An individual's freedom of speech, an individual's freedom of religion, an individual's freedom to keep and bear arms, an individual's freedom of assembly with other individuals, an individual's freedom to petition the government for grievances, to prohibit unreasonable search and seizure, to prohibit cruel and unusual punishment of an individual, to prohibit the compulsion of self-incrimination, to protect the individual against religious tyranny by prohibiting Congress from making any law respecting the establishment of a religion, to protect the federal, uh, or prohibits the federal government from depriving any individual of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In, the federal, in federal criminal cases, it requires indictment by a grand jury for any individual to be tried for a capital offense or an infamous crime. And lastly, it guarantees a speedy public trial for individuals with, a, with an impartial jury in the district in which the crime occurred and prohibits double jeopardy. So those are just a few. Do you understand right now that when we, if we implement a social so, uh, you know, a socialist government, you are basically nullifying the Constitution. Of course, people will give lip service for a while, but after a while they'll recognize that the two don't work together and they'll just dismiss the Constitution. 
With the, with the liberal left, the hardcore left, personal freedoms, religious freedoms, they all slide into a distant second behind the state's authority. Isn't that something? Religion becomes a nice-to-have. It's a nice-to-have. So, anyway, so I want to finish up here in Second Corinthians chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there. As I said, there are a lot of things that we can certainly disagree on, no doubt about it, but there are non-negotiables. And these are non-negotiables. If you think that it's okay for our country to become socialist, if you don't think that a Christian should be involved in the fight to keep it from going there, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Second Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. See, the, the great thing here is, is that God is on our side. The power of truth. The power of truth. How significant is that? That's huge. The power of truth. The power of prayer. We have an election here. We really and often. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension. Isn't that interesting? That's a good choice of words right there. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How about that? So that's what I wanted to share today. I hope that was a blessing for everybody. So let me finish up with a word of prayer. I'll open it up for your thoughts. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this truth. And Father, we thank you for uh, just being able to be convicted in the truth here and to stand strong. And Father, that we are a diverse group of people. But Father, we have common cause. And that, Father, as a body, we should stand together for your truth and your word. We thank you, Father, for this. In your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Kingdoms cry.